The National Assessment of Educational Progress, uh, widely regarded as the nation's report card, tells us that over two-thirds of American kids are not proficient at grade level in any subject. That's math, it's reading, geography, history. And among immigrants and minorities, the numbers are even worse. In the D.C. school system, which has the second highest per capita per student expenditure in the country, only 17% uh, of uh, black and Latino eighth graders were doing math or English at grade level. That's one in six performing at grade level, which is about the same rate for minority students nationwide. And this has been true for decades. I think this is a crime. Isn't it time we did something about it? Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. K through 12 schools in America are broken. Not for, most, not for all kids, but for most kids. Schools in America are broken and we need to address it. Uh, with me today to, to talk about that is Jeannie Allen, who's the longtime friend of mine and founder of Center for Education Reform and who I consider the leading advocate for educational change in America. Hey, Bill. Welcome, Jean. And also joining me is my bride, Sarah, who's an outstanding painter, but more pertinent to this show, she was CEO for a while of a business we formed uh, to teach uh, Spanish and language to kids JK through sixth grade in public schools and private schools throughout the Midwest. And at its peak, we had about 20,000 kids enrolled in both an after-school and in-curriculum program in a number of places. And Sarah has a few, few stories to share about, uh, about that experience. I always say that Bill was the brains and I was the brawn. Well, you carried all the books around. <laughs> I did. <laughs> but you designed, the, you designed all the books. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Gina, let's kick off with a couple things that uh, are on my mind that we talked about before the show. There's a book written by almost 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, by E.D. Hirsch mm -hmm. uh, on the schools we need. And then another book that came out about 10 years ago, Real Education by Charles Murray. And in both of them, they talk about educational romanticism. In E.D. Hirsch's case, he talks about romanticism as it pervades the curriculum as it's been designed. And in Charles's case, he points out that, you know, kids very well, distinctly in terms of uh, ability and ability to succeed, succeed in school. So our expectations that every kid is going to uh, do great in school and go to Harvard just isn't realistic, and we need an education system that, uh, that, that addresses that fact. Thoughts? You know, there is romanticism, both in the way Hirsch and Murray describe it, but also um, across our country, we find our schools and the education of our kids is just so lovely. I mean, think about when you're preparing your kids to go to school and when they come home with their first report cards and how proud we are when they're honors students. And we just think everything's great until like reality hits and we actually read the data. And so when there are problems, we tend to think it's because of somebody else's kids or it tends to be an anomaly or we think, oh my gosh, uh, my child has a disability. And so beyond like the lack of really strong curriculum and the fact that we think everyone is already getting educated, parents and 
the general public have this sense that, you know, it's just the most wonderful thing to ever happen to you to enter into the public education system. Well, and, and we've talked about this before. The, uh, it's, it's sort of like your local congressman. Everybody thinks Congress is terrible, except maybe their congressman's okay. Right. Same thing with schools. Everybody says, well, schools are broken. They need fixed. We need radical change. Yet my, my school's pretty nice, and I like the people, and you know, we, we, we're across the street from an elementary school, and it's just the most charming place imaginable, yet it's not producing the outcomes that we need. And I, and I, I totally agree with you, and I say what I said with, with um, just some regret, because it is a fundamental time in your child's life. It's a fundamental time in your community. It's where you make your friends. It's where uh, great cultural events happen, where you can develop the mind and the body. But as Hirsch points out, Bill, as you know, uh, the content is so uneven and so unequal across the country in terms of what kids know and be able to do. It's why he took off with cultural literacy and wrote those books, What Your Fourth Grader Should Know, Your Fifth Grader Should Know. Uh, and, and he stunned people by saying it because they thought everybody was already learning the things that he said they were learning. Well, he said this started, and I said we were going to name names, I hoped, who, who the culprits behind some of this. It started with the... Uh, Teachers College in Columbia University in New York in 1918, and they wrote a some of something about the the ideal curriculum and said it shouldn't be fact based; it should be based on on uh, attributes. And consequently, curriculum development fell into this sort of what he calls the romantic mode. And and we've really been there ever since, where that's considered to be uh, uh, the uh, uh, cause celeb. Uh, if you're an educator, I mean, if, if our uh, if our language kids, uh, Sarah, had that view, would you just be teaching them French culture, not how how to actually speak the language? That's that was what a lot of schools wanted. <laughs> so is, is, I'm curious too. So they so most schools just thought, well, let's just talk about France. Why require them to know something? Well, my, my uh, let me start with my best story. Um, we were recommended by the head of foreign languages at the Chicago Public School. To, to go out to Schaumburg, which is a su suburb of, of Chicago that had 28 new elementary schools, and they were starting a Spanish program. And it's overwhelming. So I went out to see the head of curriculum, and I showed her our program. We had books, audio tapes, teacher guides, flashcards, games, songs. And she said, okay, I'll take the books, but not the audio tapes. And I said, but it won't work then. And her response was, we don't want the Spanish program to be better than the math program. We don't want to raise parental expectations. And I knew right then the program was going to fail, and they were going to blame it on our books. You know what's so amazing <laughs> about that story? I literally just heard about Schomburg, Illinois, a day before I just sat down with you all. Oh. And the story was how bad the schools were there. I know. At one point, and how bad the college system was there because they were getting students who, like most colleges in this country, have to remedial educate, something like 75% of colleges and universities. And someone came along, and I'm not entirely sure, and we should find out and maybe report on it afterwards, and completely changed the way the schools interact yeah. with the community colleges and lifted and made it much more personalized, much more adaptive, so that students actually going into community colleges are on a career path and have mastered some incredible amounts of knowledge and content before they get there. 
And so someone figured out that so they, they were literally it. as they ignorant. It. It sounds like it's it's on its way yeah. to being more innovative. So think maybe they had like hit rock bottom. But what a comment for people to make. Well, one of the things we found was that we were teaching not only at, in nice suburbs like Schaumburg, we were teaching inner cities outside Chicago. And in some ways, one of my thoughts was that these schools in the, in the ghetto were actually better schools than the ones in the suburbs because they had to do more with less. And the kids coming into the school were not well prepared by their parents to succeed. Uh, yet if you're in Schaumburg, the parents are out there you know, reading the kids early, doing most of the work. And so the, the variable that schools are in terms of bringing about uh, change in kids, is, it, it's surprising. I thought, I thought the inner city schools in some ways were doing a better job. Well, it's, it's, inter it's interesting because what's happened is this really interesting shift dating back to when you're kind of putting a pin on the map on teacher education yeah. and this notion that there really should be no particular canon, if you will, of knowledge. And, uh, and yet the schools that are doing great, who have come to be in response to that issue, they don't say that you have to be overly prescriptive, but they do say there has to be a core set of content and expectations. So Boys Latin in Philadelphia, a men's charter school, which requires you to know Latin, to be able to recite the school motto in Latin by the time you graduate, which requires literature. Their founder, David Hardy, when he speaks says, we have demonstrated that you actually can not only teach but help these students excel and go to college mm -hmm. and high career levels because they are actually enjoying learning. He said, look, learning is actually something we like. It's, an, it's, it's a natural phenomena. Right. And it's what happens to them to deprive them of learning that sets kids into troublemakers or disinterested and breaks down this system we have in our, this process. Kids thrive when they can memorize, know facts, can point out things on a map. They love that. They love that, and they love using it yeah. to then do things that they can carve their own path. Well, our first through third graders picked up language so much faster than the fourth through sixth graders. It was incredible. And they'd often get ahead. The first, the first through third graders would often get ahead of their non-Spanish-speaking teachers. It's incredible. So the... The thing we talk about romanticism, we also, last time you were here, we talked, maybe time before, we talked about the, the structure of schools, about how we've got a 19th century factory model that's been in place where you've got inputs that are, that are managed. And we didn't really talk about so much about the curriculum models that uh, have been, are, are blocking change. And we talk about romanticism. Can you break that down into how, how curriculum has gone one direction, it could, have go, it could go another with a little more hard-headed approach? Sure. So uh, let me let me start by kind of talking about today. Um, just some fantastic innovations and in learning that are happening about a student's ability to drive their own education when given content and good, strong pedagogy. The, the pedagogy is basically something the student creates themselves by mm -hmm. giving being ac accessible to content. I mean, look, we're in the day and age of technology. Let me boil it down. What is, and we have access to unbridled opportunities, so many different points of information. So knowledge is no longer a commodity. You can find stuff. It's what you do with it. So the school in Iowa, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where the student 
is actually creating kind of an architectural model for his school. He had to do math. He had to, he had to read certain formulas. He had to draw out something. He had to interact. He had to collaborate. He had to figure out how cities, how schools are built. He took something because they give and empower students in a model like that to use the programs around them. So what's happened is we've gone from curriculum is vapid. It, you don't really need much. You just need to lead kids and they'll mm -hmm. thrive. And, and it could just be the lowest level, lowest common denominator because we don't want to challenge to meet people to a world of standards and assessments, which was very prescriptive. And everyone has to follow in lockstep. And that's the system that we sought to reform with choices in charter schools. Let's get out of this lockstep thing mm -hmm. to get more standards. And now we're coming back and saying standards are good. But what are we giving students to do? They've got to learn to be independent. They've got to learn if they're going to be a painter. Now, how, going to be how, how individual is, are those programs? I mean, if you've got 25 kids in the, in, the, in the room, how many of them are getting the same thing as the others? Or are they all, you have 25 different things they're doing? You know, it varies greatly depending on the program, depending on if it's a classroom, depending on the school. But essentially, it's a drive towards competency. You should not be able to go from one math class to another unless you're actually competent in the, mm -hmm. in the essentials that were in that one math class. So whether it's 10 problems per week, why would you go on to the next 10 if you've got 8 out of 10? Those two that you might have gotten wrong, you might have needed as those building blocks. So it's actually partly... Bill, driven by the student's capacity at that point, their competency, not capacity. And then the teacher can move around the classroom and look in real time how you're progressing. That but, is the but, wave but, of the but, future. But where is this happening? I mean, is it is it in about a hundred school districts in a huge number of charter schools okay. and, and then in some private schools more and more. But we have thirty thousand exactly, school districts. Exactly. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's just beginning okay. to scratch the surface. Well, uh, you know, we got two thirds of kids not at grade level proficiency in any subject. So Exactly. So what are the what are the barriers to this? I, I've got some candidates here. We talked before about inputs schools need to be accredited so that means if you're going to be in a public school it's got a, an accreditation if you're going to set up a charter school it goes through the same accreditation process and that standardizes both models pretty much to not look very different from each other or am i am i listening am i getting this right no so we might want to roll back okay so <laughs> public schools yeah. gain their authority simply by the fact they are run by a school district. Okay. Charter schools have to go to an authorizer for the quote-unquote accreditation, but they're essentially authorized, and they can operate as long as they've agreed to meet health safety standards, et cetera, and they have a different boss. Some states it's still the school district, which is not a good law. Some states it's a mayor. Some states it could be a university, an independent authorizer. They both, though, regardless of charter or public, traditional public or charter public, they both are pretty much, even though I favor an option to have more autonomy and choices, they both pretty much are following the traditional model of education because right. they're being held to the same tests and assessments that we put in that say that 25 or 30 kids in a class have to be here at the end of a year. Mm -hmm. Well, what if you could be much farther ahead? What if you have a completely different interest what if you've begun to actually tease out that you're of a career and you know in eighth grade where you want to go? Why are you having to sit with everybody else and be taught lockstep? So uh, 
I'm, I'm still trying to break down the difference between if I'm sending my, my, my child to a public school that's run by the, in the, in the normal, normal manner or, or a, a charter school, how different are the standards as to what the schools have to provide? Do they, how much autonomy do they have? Well, the outcomes are not vastly different, but the autonomy is dramatically different. Okay. Right? So the charter, like a private school, can have lots of authority to change the way they do business, which is why so many of the innovations that are actually making their way into lots of different systems in schools today started in charters. So this whole notion of personalized learning, being able to go at your own pace, but at the same time still achieving proficiency in something, is something that was incubated and started in Summit Charter Schools out in California mm -hmm. for the first time. Rocket ship, doing blended learning. The uh, Alliance Ready Alliance Ready College Public Schools, same thing. So how they teach, the different levels of teachers, the performance they're held to, much higher, much more diverse, much more innovative because they have that flexibility. But it still doesn't mean every charter, just like every public, traditional public school, is really using this, this knowledge of content. I mean, again, going back to Edie Hirsch and cultural literacy and what students should know. Are we really requiring to know everything they possibly can know about our world, about our country, about the culture, about arts? But that still, that still sounds romantic. I mean, is every child, I mean, I, I we mentioned Charles uh, Murray here, and he's a pretty uh, uh, trenchant thinker about some of these things. We wrote the bell curve, and his, his, one of his uh, uh, metrics is the IQ or uh, he calls it G, G scores, so we don't get in the I2 conference. And he talks about how ability varies wildly among kids. And it's not like Wobegon. Half of us are below average and half of us are above average. And we end up with these schools that assume everybody from fourth grade on is going to be on a college track. And so we, we set out a, a curriculum Sort of one size fits all with standards for the high ability students, same standards for them as maybe the low ability students. What do you think? Well, I think there's another book out there that actually um, advances farther the debate on average. It's called The End of Average by okay. Todd Rose, all right. who was a uh, welfare <clears throat> father, single parent, who now operates a center at Harvard. Um, and he's actually looked at the data and the research governing what average is. He started with a cockpit for um, uh, the Navy and how they determined what average was. And he began to realize that around the country, and particularly in education, we set this average. So at one point in time, Charles Murray was right. There was above average. There was below average. Uh, I don't think we've ever quite really unpacked the fact, though, that every student starts with a certain level of of a foundation, and if yeah. that foundation is lacking, then comparing them to average, whether they're above or below, doesn't serve the purpose. Today, what we can do is we can say, where is your passion? Where is your ability to learn? Where mm -hmm. is your interest? What do you do really well? How do you learn to do more of it well? I actually think all of our students at every level, yeah. adults too, we're finding out, can, are still very, very malleable. They can still learn a lot and do a lot and be retrained. What was his name? His name is Todd Rose. Todd Rose. And uh, it's a fascinating theory. And if you think of people's brains the way you think of their sizes, there is no average. And so that also speaks to why you need individualized learning. I'm not mm -hmm. saying a school that 400 kids are all 
doing something vastly different, but it's probably a lot like your language programs where people excelled at their own pace. Yeah. I'm doing Rosetta Stone right now again to practice my Italian to go back to Italy. And I'm at a different pace because I've got stuff going on that doesn't allow me to do it all the time. Hmm. It's the same with any kind of learning. And so that's where we have to be talking about, whether it's K or career. The Army does that. Really? I was in the Army, and uh, I got sent to clerk school, which was sort of nice since the Vietnam War was raging at the time. And they, in clerk school, they give you these stacks of books that go through and you know how you type or how you fill out a form or how you do this thing. And it's all standardized. You can go at your own pace. And it was an eight-week course that we were eight we allotted to it but you could do it at your own pace well it really it wasn't that hard and it so it took me about i don't know about seven or eight days to finish the course for the week and i was also the company uh, platoon leader <laughs> and so what i got to do was i would i would march the rest of the platoon to class and i'd go play golf in the morning and then i'd come back for lunch and then uh March them back to lunch, and then afterwards... That must have made you very popular. <laughs> no. <laughs> but my point was, you, you can. everybody had to have the same outcome in terms of what they knew, and everybody got there. In fact, by the end of it, I had a lot of... About half the company was off on the golf course with me, so we good. had a good time. So great variation in how they got there. Yeah. But they all got there. You know, I keep meeting these, um, these students who uh, were recipients of uh, an opportunity scholarship, a voucher or went through a charter school, and the story is the same over and over again. I was a troublemaker, I couldn't do this, I wasn't a good student, I was bad, they thought I was X, Y, and Z, and then I got into a school where they held me to an expectation, and now I'm gonna become a nurse, or now I'm graduating college and I went and said I wanna work for you. Or now, and no one thought that they could learn, and then they've also uncovered and unlocked their various abilities, and so I think that what we know about the brain today is, is amazing. And I wonder if Charles Murray, and he's a friend of yours, we should ask him if he was writing that book in a day and age when technology was as ubiquitous as it is today, where our, the brain is literally on fire on a regular basis, love it or not, with all of our phones and all of our equipment, it's changing the way we can react and act in the face of information, trauma, danger, or opportunity. Does that mean the smartphones made us smarter? Smartphones may have opened up and unlocked yeah. some keys. Maybe yeah. not. Maybe a little bit more ADD, sadly. <laughs> well, but how do we... These are all great individual uh, success stories that happen in specific schools. How do, you, how do you bring about institutional change across the country that, for these sort of things that work? And, you know, I, I guess you've, you've, you've cleared my, my thinking on accreditation, but we've also got teachers' colleges and certification and textbook approval and textbook publishers, and they pretty much operate in lockstep with sort of the old paradigm. We need a complete transformation yeah. in the way we do education at every level, yeah. from K through career. What we've been talking about a lot, and I know this is an interest of yours, is is are we preparing students for something they can do for life? More than half the kids are kids who go to a four-year college will not complete it. Um, well over half, I mean something like more than 60 million adults have not completed anything, not a certificate or a degree. And many of them earn jobs that are not serving their highest value and are not serving the country. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't give everyone a chance to aspire to 
as much education as they want. But a degree is a badge. Just like we got badges in Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, it's a badge. It happens to be a recognized badge. And a lot of higher ed innovators are talking about why isn't a certificate a badge? And in fact, why isn't eighth grade or maybe finishing sixth grade or maybe we shouldn't be sixth or eighth grade? Maybe it should be acquiring a certain amount of knowledge in a certain amount of time gets you a badge. So like sitting for the CPA exam. So you don't really, it doesn't measure how many years or how many semesters of, of accounting you took, although that's one of the prerequisites, but it's mainly whether you can pass the test. And so you'd have something like that for all sorts of occupations? It's a great analogy. And for all sorts of curricula and programs and content. So we want all of our kids to know, I do at least, I don't know about a lot of people, why the American Revolution was fought and what happened. Why is that fourth grade? I, I was reading to my kids about it in kindergarten. Yeah, exactly. Well, Sarah and I, <clears throat> back in the days when we were teaching language and we also had a reading program, uh, I became friends with an ex-high uh, school football coach who'd created a program where he'd take kids that had dropped out of high school or been kicked out of high school for behavior issues, and he would take the per-student uh, allocation as his revenue, and then he would take these kids, and this was 20, 25 years ago when computers were... Very beginning. Very beginning. They, you know, they look like big refrigerators, you know, they're <laughs> enormous. But he'd have them doing things with these computers in the morning, and they got through the whole high school curriculum in about three hours a, a day, five days a week, and then he had them going off to part-time jobs. And so they were not only uh, learning and moving along at their own pace, but they were getting uh, workforce training. Which and getting was, money. Oh, yeah, getting paid. <laughs> it's it's kind of like the uh, the idea of apprenticeships, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not just about, you know, a lot, the, the word vocational is bantied around a lot today. I, I don't like the word vocational because the old vocational education was almost along the German model. You're in ninth grade. You don't seem quite as promising as this one over here. So by the time you get to 10th grade, you're, you're going to go off on a bus, happened to many of my friends, and you're going to go to beautician school. Or you're going to go to, you know, some woodworking thing. And yet, they may have not gotten yeah. the foundation. Well, it's, it's like those old it, notions of working class or middle class. Right. I mean, if, if Arnold Kling said if you came down from Mars and looked at the country, you couldn't conceive there's a working class and another class. Everybody's sort of lumped in together. And, and so imagine taking that definition, too. If you said to students starting first or second grade, they're constantly exposed to wealth of pathways while they're learning and exploring, and they might decide by eighth grade or seventh grade or some weird time in their history that they want to be on a different path, maybe that's a completely different kind of education school. Maybe it's online. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's in a college. Maybe it's in a school we've never heard of. But, I, but I've already said you're the leadest, leading educational ref, reformer in bringing about change in America. How do we, how do we, multiply, how do we force multiply this? I mean, how do we, how do we roll it out? We have to uh, do a few things, and they're hard. Yeah. Uh, and they let's do the hard things. And they buck the status quo. One is we truly have to change laws that require schools to be measured based on seat time. Oh, yeah. Right and mm -hmm. numbers. So we pay for we we pay for butts and seats. They're the old Carnegie units. That's how districts get funded. That's how the federal government, the state government, the local government funds schools. It doesn't matter whether you have a federal education department or not. It's irrelevant. All schools are funded based on number formulas of kids and seat time. 
Instead, you should be funding them based on what's happening locally and whether there's competency. Student C- certification funding. or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Right. Now, we went through this whole thing with no child left behind, teaching for the test and that sort of thing. How do you avoid that uh, that trap? So, you know, the teaching to the test in a way was a necessary evil. And I, and I won't even say teaching the test. The testing was a necessary evil. The teaching and test I, came I think about, testing is, is right? essential. The teaching the test came because this system that we're trying to transform mm-hmm. didn't know how to react to these incentives or the, or the sticks and the carrot. So rather than saying, oh, my gosh, they say that our kids should know this level of math, whatever it happens to be by fourth grade, we're not going to teach them math. We're just going to make sure they test well in math. So, so it shows the flaw of the system that people felt like they had to teach to the test or just, you know, they felt like they had to practice testing. Got it. What teach to the test means so really they were learning. They were just learning they were practicing to take tests. the test. Yeah. And Got in the it. process, some kids learned. Yeah. And actually, we saw a huge bump in yeah, minority kids' But there's, kids not, but there's not much evidence that that sticks. But, right. Exactly. It's fact, not there's persistent. a lot of evidence that it doesn't stick. Right. right. And, 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 and by the way, the corollary is on the nation's report card, the states where there's more flexibility, more autonomy, more innovations happening, their black and brown kids in particular, but all students, particularly those in charter schools, went up 8 to 10 percentage points over the last few assessments. And, 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 and seat time is JK through 12. Yeah. All the way through. Now, and your diploma that's is a big based one. On so if you time. said to parents and voters, look, you really want educational change, let's rethink this whole thing. That's a that's a cause. How about you don't get a diploma for graduating 12, 12 years? How about your diploma is based on competency? That you don't get one if you don't get it within 12 if you years? Don't, if you, you, or you get it, you get it whenever you've, you've mastered the program of instruction. Well, I like that. More time for golf. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So seat time, that's a big one. What else, was there some, is there another big one that you could... Uh, Say, gee, if we could if we could change seat time, that would change a lot. Well, what else? Teacher certification and teacher education. I mean, okay. that's where, that's the reinforcement that you have to be sitting in rows, right? You're being mm-hmm. taught basically most of teacher education, except at the more I'd say progressive institutions, are about classroom management. <clears throat> you know, I there's a there's a there's a dean of Boston College who was actually at Penn when I was there who taught about Dewey. He taught about differential ways to think about language, how we all come to language. He talked about community. I remember thinking, oh, my God, we're going to talk about John Dewey. This is going to be crazy. It was interesting because he was talking about the foundations of education, asking people in this class, some of who were going to become teachers, most were going to become entrepreneurs in education, how to think about students. Mm-hmm. that's different than I show up to get my certification and I'm told that if I turn on and off the lights five times, my kids will quiet down if they're in third grade. So we need yeah. to have certification based on classroom mastery? Or certification classroom... should be based on, you should be able to hire a teacher who does something really well and proves that they've got some experience in their content field. Well, we've been through that with Language Odyssey. Yeah, we, we... <laughs> in Indiana 20 years ago, I don't know if it's the same, if you are accredited high school Spanish teacher, you are not allowed to teach elementary Spanish. Well, the other thing too is we had a, unbelievable. We had a pro- oh my gosh! We had a program <laughs> no in a way. suburb that was not unlike uh, Schomburg, and the uh, Sarah had sold the 
teacher, the, the assistant superintendent for curriculum was a marvelous wonderful, person. Wonderful. She brought us in and she, we were all set up and we had eight schools we were going to be teaching in, had hired eight teachers. We hired a couple, one of them had a PhD with Spanish, uh, had a PhD in engineering, but wanted to teach kids. And we had all sorts of highly qualified Spanish speakers because it's an immersion program. Mm -hmm. And the Indiana Teachers Union found out about this and said, well, no, 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 you can't, these people are not certified. And so even though they're fluent in Spanish, which works great in an immersion program. And they were highly educated. So, so, right. so they said you can't hire them. So they, well, you got to hire the teachers we provide. And they provided eight teachers, none of whom could speak Spanish. Oh, my gosh. Well, they knew some, some numbers and some food. Okay, numbers <laughs> and <laughs> colors. All right, anyway, we... But How long did that program? Did that, we, we did it for a couple of years trying to make that work. I remember you going down there trying to teach uh, Spanish to, uh, and your Spanish is not, well, neither I, one no, of I, our Spanish is yeah. all that great. <laughs> but oh, that's, but yeah. okay, so let's, let's circle back well, to well, big so, change. Seat me, time. Yeah, so let me ask you a question back on the teachers. Do we allow doctors to practice right away after they've passed the medical exam? No, they have to have been in a hospital as a resident. Sure. And observed, and then satisfactorily validated by their supervising doctor. We do six weeks of classroom teaching, and we go, okay, done. You're you went in. to school? Go. You're yeah. in. So imagine if their peers could say, Sarah's coming in and doing Spanish language. Maybe Sarah's a painter, and she just happens to spend a lot of time in Spanish language exercises so oh. we need sort of an apprentice program for teachers i think maybe part apprentice part content and okay. yeah i think that's a huge barrier and then really learning to refocus the unit of measurement on the student it's very hard how do you decide without without going like oh we just want schools to do anything if you focus the unit of measurement on the student, is the student making progress? Then I might pick a school that's different from what you might pick. Okay, so what, how is that different from what we have now? Unit of measure on the student. What does that mean relative to where? We measure, we measure schools on whether the school is progressing, whether a, an average, an uh, aggregate number of students is making progress. I got it. On a s set of tests, even before we had a federal requirement mm -hmm. for state-by-state -state testing. There were, you know, the Stanford 9, some of you have heard of, or just standardized tests. And you'd say, oh, the average number, this is where the average came from. The average number of kids is doing really well. 70% of them are doing pretty good on our state tests or on this you know, norm reference test. Mm -hmm. And those are good, substantial measurements to get a gauge of where people are. There's been a lot of science putting to them, not poo-pooing tests. But that doesn't mean the student is ready to graduate if they've done well or that they're not ready to graduate because they've done poorly. Because if you're Walter Bank, who ended up being safe, saved by a charter school in Ohio and ended up going to Ohio State and now is graduating and you just left the measurement of the test and didn't give him an option, he'd yeah. still be, he'd probably be in jail. <laughs> okay. Because he was that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, relative concerning outcomes, one of the thought experiments I tried when I was Sarah and I were toiling in the education vineyards with our programs was that we thought we were doing something better, faster, cheaper because it's hard for elementary schools to create a language program mm -hmm. very and to keep it going and keep it going. All sorts of issues with staging these 
these third graders and the sixth graders. It's complicated. But we had a we were doing it very cost effectively, and I I came to think there was a thought thought experiment. If we if we were just selling a pill that we could give you, and it would teach you how to speak Spanish without any other things like that, would the education establishment let us give you that pill? <laughs> because we'd gotten rid of all the other nonsense. We just produced an outcome. No, the answer is no, because the education establishment actually thinks that you're there to be socialized. Okay. And that's why they don't like homeschooling, <clears throat> and that's why they don't like parents choosing to go to their own charter or private school, because they think we should be socialized. Look, I'm a huge proponent of the melting pot. You know, my dad was a recipient of, we probably talked about this before, of like tens of millions in this country of being able to get into America and be socialized to our civic values. But we're not even doing that now. So I think our kids are pretty social without having to have the education establishment. I think they've got that that covered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, once again, fascinating. I think we've got some solutions here. We just need to get together and make them happen. And so I'm going to sign me up for your army. Let's, let's, make, let's make some educational change. You're Sarah, in. thank you. Yeah. And sharing your war stories. And Jeannie, thank you. Thank you both. I'll see you. Thanks, I'm Sarah. sure I'll see you in a few months to talk about this some more. Great. Take care. Thanks. America's education system was designed in a different era for a different society. We are at grave risk today from this obsolete system which fails to educate all children to succeed as adults. In fact, the system we have now was never designed or even intended to reach all children. But there is hope. The internet revolution, experiential learning, and other innovations which put the learner at its center have created a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity to transform education. To realize this vision for all children, Incremental change is not an option. What's required is radical change. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to amazon.com apply. That's amazon.com apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.